Thank you. As my mother used to say, don't applaud, throw money. <laughs> These days, everywhere I go, people ask me the same identical question, and I bet you can guess what it is. Pastor Rock, how do you like retirement? And my answer is always the same. I am thoroughly enjoying it. I absolutely loved being a pastor for 45 years in total. I don't have any horror stories to tell. I don't have any regrets. I feel incredibly privileged to have received God's call and to be able to carry out that calling. I don't have any old wounds. I don't have any regrets. I don't have any bitternesses. But at age 72, I do not miss the burden of responsibility. <laughs> I was very glad to take that immense responsibility and put it on much younger shoulders. And that's why I am thoroughly enjoying my retirement. Now, you never retire from serving the Lord. People remind me that all the time, and I don't know whether I should feel good about that or just be angry with them. But anyhow, as if you've got to keep going till the day you die. I'm still involved in ministry, but picking my spots. Uh, this is actually the fourth time this week I'll be ministering in some context some with the Alliance, some in the city, and then here. But most weeks have more fishing than ministry, and that is really, really acceptable to me. <laughs> Today, as we continue in our Missions Month emphasis, I want to address a very destructive tendency that is afflicting our society. Because sadly, that tendency isn't confined to our society, it has infiltrated and negatively impacted the Church of Christ. The tendency I'm speaking of has reached epidemic proportions in our nation and with devastating effects. It stifles listening, dialogue, objective, critical thinking, understanding, civility, and cooperation. It gives birth to hatred and resentment, arrogance and indifference. It fuels polarization and tribalism, and it threatens the very foundations of this republic. But when, in, when this tendency infiltrates the church, that's when it does its greatest damage. Because once it has infiltrated the church, once it's accepted in the church, four things happen, and all of them are devastating to God's kingdom. First of all, when this tendency infiltrates the church, it compromises biblical interpretation. The hunger for God's truth surrenders to an addiction to confirmation confirmation of our spiritual biases, our cultural biases, and our political biases. We seek echoes when we come to Scripture rather than revelations, and that eventually leads to the death of discernment. Secondly, this tendency blinds us to truth that we so desperately need. Third, it quenches the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And finally, it hinders obedience and biblical 
practice. And the effects of those four things, well, those effects are eternal. It wouldn't be a stretch, I believe, to suggest that when this tendency infiltrates the church, it births a spiritual polarization that degrades our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, and our relationship with the needy world. And it erodes the very foundation of our focus this month, missions. And that's why I want to address it. Now, to set the stage for our consideration, I want to read two commandments. Both are familiar to you if you've been a part of ACAC for any length of time. One is from the Old Testament book of Micah, the other from Matthew's account of the gospel. Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Today I want to speak on the topic of devotion, not division. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us eternal truth in your word. And we're thankful that the author of the word, the Holy Spirit, lives within the believing heart to open our understanding, to empower us for action and obedience. Today, as we consider the intersection of your truth with the cultural and spiritual realities of our days, I pray that the words of my mouth and the responses of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. If you're serious when you read Scripture, and I hope you are, and if you haven't been compromised by some idolatry, you quickly learn that reading God's Word isn't always a warm fuzzy. It's not always a comfortable experience. And it's certainly not for those who are intellectually lazy or those who are determined that they're not going to change. Scripture teaches a host of things that we struggle to understand and to believe and to accept. And one of the foremost is the reality that every commandment of God is an expression of his love. Every commandment, without exception, including those raw-edged commandments. Every commandment is an expression of God's love, even when we struggle to see how that could be the case. And I say that because in God's universe, love isn't something that we get to define. And it isn't merely a virtue that God practices at an unparalleled level. Love, according to the Apostle John, is literally who God is. God is love. And God never steps out of who he is when he's issuing a command. Instead, his commands give us insights into who he is in behavioral terms that we can grasp. And God's on record. He never changes. 
That's why God will never negate a previous command with caveats like, sorry, I just wasn't myself when I spoke that. Or, you know, now in hindsight, I've come to see things differently. Or, you know, I was angry when I gave that command, but I've, I've settled down now and I think I need to change it. And even when God replaces a previous command with another, and he does that as we move from Old Testament to New, it doesn't indicate some evolution on God's part, some awakening, some maturing on God's part. It simply indicates that there are many aspects of God's character and aspects of what God is doing in the world and in his people that have to be revealed slowly and incrementally and applied in stages. Now, all of that to say this, when we seek to edit or deny a command of God, the reality is it isn't the command that we find troubling, it's God himself. If you have difficulty with any command of God, that indicates a difficulty with God himself. Now, given that reality, there are some things God will never ask us to do, and here's one of them. God will never ask us to obey some of his commandments while ignoring others. He won't point to the Ten Commandments and suggest that you obey the five that you find most relevant or that you feel are most important. He won't propose that out of the over 1,000 commandments in the New Testament that you only obey the ones you fully understand or the ones that seem to make the best sense or the ones that find acceptance from human society or the ones that align with your political persuasions. Because when we do that, we violate some aspect of who God is some aspect of his character, and some aspect of his love. And we essentially divide God himself into acceptable portions and unacceptable portions. Now, why am I emphasizing this reality? I'm emphasizing it because it stands in stark contradiction to the destructive tendency I referenced in the opening, the one I want to focus on today. And here's that tendency. Our infatuation with false dichotomies, also known as either-or fallacies. Now, a false dichotomy is typically employed in a disagreement, in a debate, to portray your opponent as holding to an evil position or an extreme, unacceptable position. It assumes that there are only two alternatives and they cannot be reconciled. An example, America, love it or leave it. Love it, leave it, the only two options. As if a citizen couldn't appreciate his or her nation state, but also question the wisdom of some of its actions and policies. See, it's a false dichotomy. Now, if you've been paying attention, we're being bombarded with false dichotomies, especially in the political arena. We find it in political discourse. We find it in our news sources. It's everywhere. You're either pro-science or pro-religion. False dichotomy. You're either pro-gun rights or 
anti-freedom. False dichotomy. You're either capitalist or a socialist. False dichotomy. You either support this legislation or you're a racist. False dichotomy. You either agree with me or you're a terrible person. That's the most common false dichotomy. Now, I'm not going to expand this weekend on why false dichotomies flourish, why we're attracted to them. Suffice it to say, sin, pride, fear, and laziness have a lot to do with it. My concern is what this destructive tendency does when it sneaks into the church. And I believe it has. And that explains why Jesus' followers sometimes act as if they have to choose between God's command to do justice and his command to disciple all people groups. To choose between Micah and Matthew. As if the second, discipling all people, is somehow incompatible with the first. As if those two concerns couldn't share the same life and the same heart. As if God doesn't give his people enough love and passion and energy for total obedience. As if Paul said, you know, I can do a couple things through Christ who strengthens me, but I could never do all things. Now, I believe there's ample evidence for my concern. Years ago, I sat in the audience of a Christian musical. And in that musical, one of the characters suggested that the other's devotion to missions in other nations was indicative of that believer's indifference to the plight of people suffering in her own community. And it was a classic false dichotomy. And sadly, that kind of thinking isn't rare. Recent surveys among those who profess to be following Jesus revealed a growing zeal for local expressions of compassion and justice, especially to the poor and those who have been historically negatively impacted by chronic injustice. And if you know me, you know I applaud and embrace that development. It's long overdue. But those same surveys reveal a declining passion for global witness to those trapped in spiritual poverty, to those who have been historically impacted by chronic spiritual injustice. And when you and I could literally listen to the gospel of Christ 24 hours a day while entire people groups have never heard the name of Christ, I would call that a spiritual injustice. Now, there are a host of reasons for this trend. One, the real dichotomy, the genuine dichotomy that was articulated by Jesus. In no uncertain terms, what did he declare? Life and truth are only found in me. You're either for me or you're against me. Now, in a culture that denies the existence of moral absolutes and absolute truth, a culture that substitutes human consensus for divine revelation, the exclusivity of Jesus' statement is offensive. It's scandalous. And those who are convinced of it and communicate it are seen as arrogant, suffering from intellectual suicide, hatred, or bigotry. 
And that explains in part why our culture rarely, rarely criticizes believers for feeding the hungry, providing health care, combating racism, assisting addiction recovery, and so on. The world may even applaud those efforts, but always with a measure of suspicion. But when the church declares God's absolute truth to Muslims, to Hindus, to Buddhists, to atheists, to animists, to agnostics and others, that is roundly condemned. Now, in the face of that disapproval, Jesus' followers will always be tempted to opt for less controversial obedience. Because none of us enjoy having people think ill of us. None of us like being on the receiving end of name-calling. So we, we tend to opt for obedience that doesn't invite the hostility of society or even others in the church. And obedience to God usually brings hostility from both. But you see, if God means what he says and says what he means, and if Christ is who he clearly said he is, both missions and the pursuit of justice are essential expressions of God's heart. Missions isn't cultural arrogance. And the pursuit of justice in society is not a departure from the real work of the church. Both are the real work of the church. Both evidence a humble submission to God's love. And where one is missing, submission to God is incomplete. Where either one is missing, we're guilty of practicing division rather than devotion. Now, a second reason why some people are tempted to embrace a false dichotomy where missions is concerned is the fact that we tend to embrace overcorrection for past omission. Happens in every arena of life. We tend to substitute error in one extreme for error in the other extreme. And I suspect that stems from the fact that it is much easier to sit in error than it is to stand in balance. Balance, both and thinking, requires humility. It requires a teachable spirit. It requires intellectual and spiritual vigilance. It requires careful, critical evaluation. It requires you to submit your thinking to God, to follow Paul's commandment to bring every thought, every thought captive to Christ. Watch what believers say on social media and ask the question, is that man, is that woman bringing every thought captive to Christ? Because there is a whole lot of unchristlike stuff being put on social media by professing believers. Hideous stuff, hateful stuff, racist stuff, divisive stuff, arrogant stuff, stupid stuff. because it's easier to sit in error than walk in balance. For far too long, many believers in this nation stressed making disciples all around the world while largely neglecting God's commands to seek justice for their neighbors across the street. I grew up in an era where that was characteristic of the church. 
The church I grew up in was passionate about missions in the Congo, but apathetic about ministry in their community. They would drive by pockets of despair and suffering a quarter of a mile from the church to sing about the perishing half a world away. And it wasn't right. It was sin. It was omission. It was an evil that grieved and quenched God's spirit. But such failures will never be rectified by abandoning missions and focusing entirely on the needs of people nearby. And here's why. You never correct one sin by committing another. Never. If you correct one sin by committing and engaging in another, now you're practicing division. Division of God's character, division of God's commandments, divisions of God's word, division of God's heart. A third reason why the command to make disciples worldwide is often neglected is another false dichotomy. The one that suggests that if we focus overseas, it will decrease what we can do here close at hand. But love is not a zero-sum game. Zero-sum game is an economic term. It simply means there's only so much available. So if one person gets more, somebody else inevitably gets less. That's a zero-sum game. But in God's kingdom, in God's kingdom, love for people is not a zero-sum game. Love for people far off will not diminish your love for people nearby for a very simple reason. God's love is unlimited, and he has poured out that love in our hearts, and he is able to make it increase in our hearts. Expressing God's love in one arena will not diminish your capacity for love in another. It will only expand your understanding and enhance your submission. And let me be a bit blunt. When love of God's people, when the love of God's people for those close at hand is deficient, when God's church isn't passionate about justice, when God's church isn't passionate about ending injustices, missions is never, never the culprit. Never. When God's people are apathetic about injustice in their own community, it's not because they're focused on people across the world. It's because of ignorance. It's because of indifference. It's because of bigotry. It's because of fear. It's because of arrogance. It's because of selfishness or a combination of those things. Let's be frank. If somebody receives Jesus in Azerbaijan, that doesn't make me doesn't require me to change my life one iota. But for people in my community to experience greater justice, that will almost definitely require something of me. Missions to other people groups is never the reason, never, why the body of Christ is negligent about justice in its own community. Genuine love for God births both missions and justice efforts because just as you don't solve 
one sin by committing another. The reverse reality is obedience in one arena fuels obedience in another. Just as disobedience is contagious, obedience is contagious. Now, the founder of our movement, the Alliance, illustrated that reality. A.B. Simpson was often found weeping over the globe in his office as he contemplated entire people groups, ethnic groups, language groups who had no knowledge of the gospel of Christ. But Simpson also ministered to the poor and the desperate in his city and in his nation. He assisted immigrants who were facing bigotry. He founded homes for unwed mothers who might otherwise have to resort to prostitution. He offered language training and job training for people who were unemployed. He offered ministry education for minorities who were denied access to Bible colleges and seminaries. He did all of those kinds of things while he also sent people to every people group he could with the good news of Christ. See, he didn't live a divided life. He lived a devoted life. Simpson understood Jesus didn't call us to choose missions or justice. He called us to both. It's his passion to restore broken humanity wherever they are and at every point of their need. So beware of false dichotomies. We're bombarded with them all the time. And if you aren't being intentional, if you aren't being careful, they'll begin to seduce your spirit and your thinking. False dichotomies hinder God's work in the world and God's work in his people. They cause us to see alternatives where alternatives don't exist. And then we miss the both and balance of genuine obedience to God and love for God and for our neighbors. In closing, I want to remind you that God's work is something that we do together. There are no lone rangers in the church. Some people try to be, but God never called anybody to be a lone ranger. We do it together. So for that reason, remember this, God doesn't call us to identical involvement. He calls us to equal passion. Now, what do I mean? Paul said there are a variety of spiritual gifts, a variety of ministries. You need to know what yours are and embrace them. That means some people are going to focus primarily on people inside the church, discipling believers. Others are going to be gifted by God to focus on those who are suffering injustice near the church. And some are going to be raised up by God to focus on those who have never heard about Christ around the world. None of us will do all of that individually. But a spirit-led, spirit-empowered, Christ-honoring church will do all those things. It won't say we're a mission church, not a justice church. It won't say we're a justice church, we're not a missionary church. It will say we are the church of the living Christ who cares about those who have never heard and those who have never had a chance. It's both and. And in doing both, we will demonstrate that we are committed to devotion 
devotion, not division. Will you unite your hearts with mine in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, when we are daily hearing the messages of a culture, daily living out our lives in the midst of a culture, when our lives are being affected by the discourse and the activities of a culture, it's very easy to allow the culture to squeeze us into its mold. It's easy for us to become pale reflections of the culture rather than shining examples of Christ in us. Lord, as the nation is dividing over false dichotomies, and as now your church is beginning to divide over false dichotomies, And as both missions and justice suffer because of false dichotomies, help us, O God, help us here to be a people who do everything you command, knowing that there are no optional commands, that when we neglect any command, we're neglecting some aspect of your love and your heart. Father, help us to be a mature body that does mission and justice, both in the name of Christ, both without apology, both as the expression of genuine devotion. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. It's so good to be with you again. Let let me just say something before Alan comes and we close. A pandemic was a horrific time to retire. It really was because I really didn't get to do a farewell tour of hugging and, and, and telling people how much I love them. And I never really got a chance to talk to you face to face and tell you how much I've appreciated your love and support over 36 years. And I'm not going to do that tonight. Because we still aren't back to normal. Everybody isn't here. But sometime after we're all back to whatever the new normal is, and everybody's here, I'm going to ask the wonderful pastor of this church if he'll give me a few minutes to just thank you directly and in what I feel is an adequate way for 36 years of love and support. Doesn't matter how fast the horse is running if the cart doesn't come behind it. And I came 36 years ago with some instructions from God that were hard. And yet the cart came with the horse. And today ACAC is a much different place than the one I came to. And you are to be commended and celebrated for that. And I will always be very appreciative. And I better shut up. If I'm going to do it later, I shouldn't do it now. God bless you.